Hello, my name is Hassan Sorrells, and this is the Leadership Lessons from the Great Books podcast bonus. There's no book reading on bonus episodes. These are interviews, rants, raves, insights, and other audio musings, and sometimes conversations that I've documented and recorded about leadership. Because listening to me muse or rant or just randomly speechify about leadership for an indeterminate amount of time is still better than reading and trying to understand yet another business book. Even the ones that we sometimes reference on this podcast. A Great Book's Apologia. Introduction. In the old days, before the arrival of modern and postmodern pseudo-intellectual arrogance and overweening anti-seriousness, an apologetic or an apologia was a justification, a defense, or an explanation for whatever the topic at hand happened to be. The Oxford Dictionary, which these days is struggling massively with defining both genders clearly, tends to define apologetics as, quote, the nature of a formal defense or justification of something such as a theory or religious doctrine, close quote. In our time, we Western moderns clicking, skimming, doom scrolling, and all the time barely comprehending content thrown in front of us tend to confuse the root word of apologetics, uh, the term apologize, with shame, feeling bad, and somehow, somewhere, some way, akin to lying. This feeling is a fellow traveler to the faulty belief, which is usually the pride of immature youths, that every one of our quote-unquote truths should immediately fall somehow out of our mouths. And it is in these times that the great books, the classics, if you will, of Western literature, need a defense, an apologetic if you will. There are multiple reasons for believing that this defense is appropriate to mount in our time, and none of those reasons have anything to do with rehashing academic arguments with postmodern feminists or decrying the quite obvious death of the humanities. One of the biggest reasons that these books need a defense is that the walls that once surrounded the cultural confidence of Western man, walls of history, religion, shared cultural norms, 
and even conceptions of family and identity have been successfully torn apart by forces that have offered no compelling and defensible replacement. The great books lay in the rubble of these torn down walls. Sure, a person here or there may come along and cannibalize an idea that lay nested inside one of the bricks of the wall, but fundamentally, there are very few efforts, all laudable though, to rebuild the walls. The Old Testament wall builder and king's taste tester, Nehemiah, upon hearing news that the walls of Jerusalem have been destroyed by the, by the Babylonians, um, wrote this. From Nehemiah 1, 2 through 5, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, Quote, those who survived the exile are back in the province, are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. King James Version. As guardians of the broken down walls of the West in America, though, we may be more inclined to take the tack of Colonel Nathan Jessup, <clears throat> the titular villain in the Aaron Sorkin penned film, A Few Good Men from a few years ago. His courtroom lecture to a thoroughly postmodern, thoroughly self-righteous and thoroughly prideful Lieutenant Caffey is somewhat instructive for our apologia here. And I quote, son, we live in a world that has walls, and those walls have to be guarded by men with guns. Who's going to do it? You, Lieutenant Weinberg? You? I have a greater responsibility than you could possibly fathom. You weep for Santiago, and you curse the Marines. You have that luxury. You have the luxury of not knowing what I know, that Santiago's death, while tragic, probably saved lives. And my existence, while grotesque and incomprehensible to you, saves lives. You don't want the truth because deep down in places you don't talk about at cocktail parties, you want me on that wall. You need me on that wall. We use words like honor, code, loyalty. We use these words as the backbone of a life spent defending something. You use them as a punchline. I have neither the time nor the inclination to explain myself to a man who rises and sleeps under the blanket of the very freedom that I provide and then questions the manner in which I provide it. I would rather you just said thank you and be on your way. Otherwise, I suggest you pick up a weapon and stand a post. Close quote. All you have to do there in that little speech delivered a lot better by Jack Nicholson I would be scarcely remiss in admitting all you have to do there is replace the word Marines with terms like the great books of Western literature and you'd have a whole bouncing apologetic uh, right there
boulders in a box canyon. In the old westerns, the ones that used to that we used to use to successfully export the myths of manifest destiny and the hope and the rightness of the West, along with ideas about law and order, heroes and villains, and the right ordering of men and women, there would always be a scene or sequence where the hero of the Western would ride into a canyon in order to shoot it out with the villain. This canyon typically featured high rock walls with one entry in and one entry out. Well, the rocky sides of the Box Canyon, leading to a defense of the great books, has a lot of falling boulders, but there are three big ones that crash into this apologia and can destroy it pretty well. And so, let's address them or neutralize them or try to put some TNT underneath them right now. The first boulder is the assertion by many critics, readers, academics, and statistical algorithms of BookScan that fewer and fewer people are actually buying, reading, understanding, and comprehending the great books, and even fewer are absorbing the lessons from them. The second boulder is that there is little patience in the modern world between the dopamine-fueled twin poles of social media and social entertainment with old ideas and hard-won wisdom delivered with cultural confidence and candor via print. The third and final boulder is that for leaders, all written materials require understanding, but old, less current written materials require patience, and they tend to resist the never-ending hummingbirdization of attention us moderns are so in love with. To quote from Michael Durda, a Pulitzer Prize-winning columnist for the Washington Post Book World, who recently penned his own version of a great book's apologia, and I quote, in the arts, especially education, uh, in the arts especially, education consists of seeing how deeply the past informs the present. Knowing what early generations accomplished conveys perspective, the capacity to recognize the new from the retrograde, the original from the pastiche. In literature, the popularity of annotated editions of various classics shows how much we still value basic contextual information about earlier historical periods, and paradoxically, how much we have forgotten of what was once traditional cultural literacy. The great books are great because they speak to us generation after generation. They are things of beauty, joys forever, most of the time. Of course, some of the books will make you angry at the prejudices they take for granted and occasionally endorse, no matter. Read them anyway. Recognizing bigotry and racism doesn't mean you condone them. What matters is acquiring knowledge, broadening mental horizons, viewing the world through eyes other than your own. Close quote. The classics, the books that elevate and educate, need not be widely read, though that would go a long way to restoring and rebuilding cultural confidence in the West, but they do need to be read, period. When we ignore or dismiss the education the past can provide to us in the now, we doom ourselves, as we are currently doing, to bewilderment, chaos, and the compliance of the state, both now and in the future. The lessons of the great books are that there are no new ideas under the sun, and that the sun rises and sets, and neither I nor you are in charge of any of those particular acts. The patience to read and access the great books requires discipline, a word that is starting to gain some traction, but I fear too little too late. 
in our Epicurean era where we can have anything we want, whenever we want, however we want it, the tendency of individuals to enslave other individuals in interpersonal tyranny, well, that sings the siren song of libertinism, and that song is incredibly loud. Reading the great books drowns out that song and replaces it with measured discipline that lasts longer than the dopamine hit you get from dunking on whichever political opponent needs to be dunked on in the current cultural moment. Finally, at some point, individuals have to rebel against the short attention span seduction of the internet and its marketers, entertainers, and content creators, myself included, but they must do so only by replacing such sugary temptations with something of substance. And I quote, of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing you are dull of hearing. For when for the time you ought be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongs to them that are full of that are of a full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Hebrews 5, 11 through 14, King James Version. We in the postmodern West are living increasingly boundaryless existences, surrounded everywhere by the ravages of existential dread and the decline of human meaning. And we are in desperate need of the meat the great books provide in order to regain our senses and restore our attention. And the great books are definitely not for the immature or the unserious, no matter how academically inculcated and urbanely sophisticated they may claim to be. Leadership Lessons from the Great Books. The postmodern, emotionally driven, algorithmically manipulated Western mind, upon hearing or reading the words, the great books of Western literature, immediately and instinctively recoils in intellectual and moral disgust. The reason for this is simple. We in the West collectively and individually have merrily pulled apart or deconstructed, if you will, the literary accomplishments of the past 2,500 years in a vain, glorious effort to strip mind scientific truth while sacrificing the transcendental meaning required to act in an impactful way in the world. Much of the blame for this deconstruction can lie at the feet of thinkers and writers that sought enlightenment without the transcendental, Rousseau the most notorious among them, 
and their followers who took the argument or premise, if you will, to its logical and horrific conclusion, uh, that'd be Nietzsche. However, for the average quote-unquote business leader and learner, all of that history seems like so much dusty, irrelevant, and uninteresting claptrap. It is because in the process of replacing the pursuit of the transcendent with the pursuit of pure profit, much business education abandoned the fields of ethics, philosophy, and theology to the radical humanistic thinkers. This has created a postmodern business leader who can raise money after bilking investors and be praised by the business media and the general public for how quote-unquote smart and quote-unquote savvy he is. It has also created an environment where reading business literature, much of it quite good, yet repetitive as well, to behave more subtly in a manner ill-befitting a leader becomes more valuable than reading actual historically great literature. I'll put it simply, there's more to learn and glean about the courage in business situations from Jane Austen than from all the fine research and writing of Brene Brown. And the way to glean such knowledge is not to critique the text, critique the motives of the writer, or critique the poverty of the historical moment they wrote in, although, as Derrida pointed out, you can buy annotated editions and you can engage in that game if you would like, but instead, to glean such knowledge is to seek to think critically about three areas in relation to the literature that you are reading, the great books you are seeking as a business leader. The first question is, what is this book actually trying to say about leadership? The second question is, what in this book can I apply as a leader to working with the people, the processes, or the product I'm seeking to put out in the world? And the third question is, what is this book cautioning me to avoid, watch out for, or prepare for that I cannot see myself? When leaders can think critically about a piece of literature, fiction or nonfiction, it doesn't matter, then leaders are on the path to becoming the leader that they always wanted to be. You can learn more about the tyranny of small moments and the freedom of large moments from both Austin and Shakespeare. Now, there are some objections here, and I want to sort of knock them down, not like boulders in a box canyon, but more like bullets out of the gun of a villain. First objection, books are not the way people learn now in the world we live in today. There's so many other options. Now, the first objection can and should be dismissed as so much anti-intellectual claptrap. This is because great literature, like great art, rises above the inherent differences between people and even technology, and serves to unite humanity cross-culturally and cross-technologically. To introduce such an objection serves only to continue our downward slide into low ignominy. And that seems to be a slide that our current business culture and our current leadership culture seems intent on following. Objection number two, there is little empirical or statistical evidence that reading great books fosters leadership thinking. The second objection can and should be addressed by remembering that for all of our technological prowess and scientific knowledge, from Darwin all the way to Dawkins, there has been little increase in our actual practical ethics, wisdom, or decision-making. The problems that we face now as business leaders and as average people, problems of greed, uncharitableness, lack of kindness, an inability to read, listen, and think, Vanity and narcissism, and so many more, have always been a product of the human condition. Technology, 
Technology merely provides a sheen of sophistication to ugly, brutish, and mean behavior. Literature of the past moves away this sheen. It shows us the capital T truth underneath and challenges us to change it as leaders. Objection number three, then final objection. Leadership training is like finishing school for adults and thus worthless because the real world is too complicated to be distilled down into a book or a training or a program or a video. And besides, books that are defined as quote-unquote great were all written by dead white males, and we must smash the patriarchy if we are to move forward to the future. Well, the final objection, the last one there, is really a restating of the first objection, but in a more deconstructed French postmodern disguise. The quote-unquote finishing school for adults actually is necessary, as many quote-unquote adults walking around in matured bodies still possess immature minds. These great books are agnostic as to skin color, gender, age, or even natural national origin. And to believe that the dead white males of the past might not have wisdom for us in the current now is merely a reinvigoration of the very paternalism we objected to in the past, but now with a nice, shiny academic veneer. The basic erroneous premise that lurks Nietzschean-like underneath all of these objections and more, but those are the three big ones, is that leaders of the present must be slaves to the present and that the past never mattered. And the future, if it's coming at all, might just be irrelevant. Such a premise leads leaders to not only not learn from the literature of the past, but it also breeds an anti-intellectual, narrow patrician, narrowly patrician complacency that allows unethical behavior to pass without comment, for organizations to be built and only expressly exist to transform human attention and experience into clicks and cash, and leads to the endless, continuous, and detrimental hollowing out of the magnificent heart of the once magnificent West. Conclusion. Leaders are readers, fundamentally, at the end of the day. And the reason why I do this podcast, and the reason why we read great books on this podcast is because leaders are also listeners and critical thinkers, and they are intentional actors on the world stage, whether that world is the world of their family, the world of their community, the world of their workplace, or the world of the actual world. And it doesn't much matter if that stage lies in a small business in Peoria, Illinois, 
or a large business somewhere in Mumbai, India. To support these leaders is why this podcast exists. To explore the lessons of history is why this podcast exists. To encourage more critical thinking and to discourage clickbait-driven attention-grabbing nonsense is why this long-form podcast exists. To add to the heart of Western culture rather than taking more from it is why this podcast exists. And it is also fundamentally the point of reading and absorbing and comprehending great books, talking about them and apologizing for and justifying their presence in this world at this time. We've covered a lot of books this year, this year of our Lord on the podcast, from Gabriel Garcia Marquez all the way to Homer and even Shakespeare, from Jane Austen to Ernest Hemingway, and from Joan Didion to F.A. Hayek. Our reading list is in the show notes just below the player. I'd encourage you to click on the list if you like this podcast and if you like what you're hearing and pick up at least one of these books for the holiday season and give it to a leader in your life who you know needs to become a reader. The mere act of giving a great book can begin guiding them down the path to understanding and comprehending a great book. And well, that's it for me.
Listen and subscribe to the Leadership Lessons from the Great Books podcast on all the major podcast players that you listen to podcasts on, including iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and even Spotify. And please leave a five-star review if you like the show. We need those reviews to grow, and it's the easiest way to make sure that this show gets into the ears of the leaders who need to hear it. And of course, tell all your friends. If you want to get started on the leadership path, HSCT Publishing's products and services can help your team do that. Check out our training webinars, coaching services, and more at leadershiptoolbox.us. We also have a video-based subscription service, that's software as a service, that can help your team become better at the individual level. 60 modules on over 100 hours of video and written content for you at leadingkeys.com. That's leadingkeys.com. We've also got books that will help you and your team grow. Pick up a copy today of My Boss Doesn't Care, 100 Essays on Disrupting Your Workplace by Disrupting Your Boss, and subscribe to the Little Red Podcast I launched earlier this year with the same name as that Little Red Book. My most recent book is 12 Rules for Leaders, The Foundation of Intentional Leadership, co-written with contributions from Bradley Madigan. This is the book for right now that was written for leaders right now. Pick up a copy by heading over to 12rulesleadersbook.com backslash now. That's 12rulesleadersbook.com backslash now. You pay for shipping, and you'll get a copy of my second book as well. Finally, you can get all these books in paperback, hardcover, or as ebooks on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, and any other place online you order books. Finally, HSCT Publishing is on YouTube. Like and subscribe to the video version of the Leadership Lessons for the Great Books podcast on the HSCT Publishing channel on YouTube. Just search for HSCT Publishing and hit the subscribe button. You'll get our weekly video updates, which is the video version of this podcast. And, of course, you're going to want to subscribe to my other podcast. That's right, I do do more than one. The Hayson Sorrells Presents Audio Experience, where I talk more casually with a broader range of people about all matters that matter in the world today, from arts all the way to analytics. All right, that's it for me.